0: It's not about the destination. It's never been about the destination, whether in this world or the next. That's only what gets us on the road, setting us in motion. The true destination is the journey itself. Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and you are In the Cave. Get your motor running Head out on the highway Looking for adventure And whatever comes our way Yeah, darling, go make it happen Take the world in a loving embrace, Fire all of your guns and bombs and Explode into space I like smoking lightning Welcome to the Mystic Cave, the summer edition. I'm reading from my novel, Passion Tide, published by Path Books in 2002. Father David is now a refugee of all that he fears. His reliance upon strangers has not bolstered his faith in people, one taking advantage of him, others refusing to recognize his humanity, like the experience of refugees everywhere. This is Chapter 2, Part 3. It surprised Father David how suddenly the mountains rose up to meet him. As he left Calgary, it still felt as if he were driving toward a painted backdrop. But the highway began pitching and rolling as the prairies folded into foothills, the mountains appearing and disappearing as he climbed hills and rounded sweeping curves. Then he climbed the brow of one final hill and found himself descending to the very foot of of the mighty Canadian Rockies. They parted to receive him, impossible slabs of rock rising on either side. As he entered the mountains and passed the turnoff for Canmore, he wondered if the residents of this town felt at all claustrophobic, or at the very least if they were intimidated by their massive mountainous guardians looking down on them. Would it not feel like having a team of sumo wrestlers to watch over your children as they sleep, but then having to endure them hanging about all day, silent and sullen, menacing in their pure bulk? They're just too big to have in the house. The toll booths at the entrance to Banff National Park presented him with a decision. Was he going to stop in Banff, for which he needed a permit, or was he driving through? It was still early afternoon— His destination was Kamloops, a mere four or five hours away, and he didn't see himself pressing on to Vancouver from there, even if he arrived by supper time. So why not put in a little time in this picturesque, world-famous mountain town? He could arrive in Kamloops after dark, still get a good night's sleep, and then complete the final leg of his journey all the way to the coast the next day. He purchased a day pass and turned off the highway for the town centre. The place was teeming with tourists. Oversized buses were pulled up in front of the lodges and motels that lined the main street leading into the heart of town. The sidewalks were crowded with clumps of walkers, apparently intoxicated by the bracing mountain air, pouring off the edges of the sidewalk and into the path of the slow-moving traffic. Vehicles neither honked nor swerved, but floated dreamily along under the same euphoric spell as the pedestrians. The town's visitors fell easily into two groups. The most noticeable were those on packaged tours, the kind that include visits to designated outfitters who specialize in bright outdoor clothing designed to impress the friends at home or, more likely destined, To remain in dark, stuffy closets back in Osaka or Bonn or Phoenix. This group was just too giddy to be self conscious in its odd combinations of light summer slacks, street shoes, and colorful down filled ski jackets puffing out at the torso and sleeves like the Michelin Man. The second group consisted of the young and the restless, their fashion statement no less marked than that of the tourists. Gap-inspired drifters in their dreadlocks, khaki army pants, thick sweaters, and bandanas. Generally, they were not walking. They were loitering in small clutches, gazing out onto the passing world through hooded eyes, holes at the fingers of their wool gloves, dreaming perhaps of the beaches in Morocco or the dope in Amsterdam. The locals were harder to spot at first, mainly because they looked so well, normal. In shirt sleeves or sweaters, in sneakers or hiking boots, they strode along with purpose, as people do who are going about their daily business. With practiced ease, they sidestepped the slow-motion clumps of fashionable color and the lingering clots of khaki, without losing speed, just as one learns to do in the city. They themselves were transplants, of course, opportunists, scaling the high slippery slopes of the yen and the mark and the almighty American dollar, but clearly they were prevailing. Father David drove slowly with the stop-and-go flow of traffic, crossing the broad stone bridge at the head of the main street, up the winding road that led to the town's most enduring symbol, the tall, turreted Banff Springs Hotel. It was like a movie set, People in toques crossed the road in front of him, skis slung over their shoulders, even though snow was visible at only the highest altitudes of the surrounding mountains. Was this yet another fashion statement? Or was it the result of a cruel trick played by Canadians on unsuspecting American visitors who had been told they had better take along a French-English dictionary as well? Father David was not sure how best to enjoy his few hours in this alpine showpiece. Having parked his car along a side street back in town, he joined the moving throng along the main street, feeling vaguely disappointed. He was in the mountains, to be sure, and the clear cold air was rejuvenating, but somehow, walking the pavement in the crush of a slow-moving crowd had not been one of his fantasies of the Rockies. He turned into a restaurant that featured bison burgers on a handwritten Bristol board sign in the window and ordered up the platter, which included a hefty helping of buffalo chips. It arrived with a limp lettuce side salad, thick-cut french fries being apparently the buffalo chips, and an ordinary-looking burger slopped with a ketchup mayonnaise sauce so thick that any distinctive flavor in the meat was all but smothered It could have been a horse burger, as far as Father David could tell. As he left the restaurant, Father David stopped to gaze up at the massive windswept peak of Mount Rundle, a deceptively smooth face rising gently to a sudden drop-off, just the sort of jagged precipitous edge that would instill the fear of heights into an otherwise stable person. You could walk right up to that edge, he thought, and his eye followed a possible line of ascent. He fell into a reverie, allowing himself to imagine the details of a strange scene. A family huddles together at the windswept summit for a group shot, the father, triumphant, setting up his camera on a tripod. Just a little farther back, he directs them. Nervously glancing behind them, the mother holding her children tightly now, they inch backward. With the timing device on the camera now ticking, Dad scrambles to rejoin them, slipping in behind. But just as the shutter clicks, he leans back, too close to the edge, and loses his balance. He falls backward into the void, his last sight being the horrified faces of his wife and children as he plummets down, away from them. Father David shivered. His heart was pounding. He took a deep breath. It was only a daydream, he told himself, only a daydream. But this was the problem with nature, he thought, as his breathing calmed. To really experience it, you have to put yourself almost in harm's way. Climb the mountain, shoot the rapids, blaze the forest trail. Otherwise, you might just as well look at a postcard, or do what he was doing, stand on a crowded sidewalk outside a greasy spoon, safe in the puffy folds of red and orange Michelin people. Before he left town, he pulled into a gas station. A young man direct from a sales course perhaps greeted him with more enthusiasm than a tank of gas really warranted. While the tank was filling, the young man initiated a conversation. So, how do you like the sprint, he asked. Father David was a bit surprised by the question. It's, uh, fine, I guess. Does it have enough oomph for the mountains, the young man asked. Oomph? <laughs> I don't know yet, Father David said. But I guess I'll be finding out. Yeah, my mom used to have this car, the kid said. It was great for running around town, but boy, was it ever slow when she drove through the mountains. It just didn't have enough oomph, you know. But what can you expect from three cylinders? Father David took a moment to process this new information. This car has only three cylinders? Yeah, didn't you know that? The young man smiled engagingly, yet without being derisive. No, Father David said, I didn't. Yeah, well, anyway, it's good on gas, the young man said, winding up. That'll be $15, sir. Three cylinders, Father David thought. Three cylinders. He had traded in a car that good old Al had said he himself wouldn't drive through the mountains because it was running on only three cylinders. And then Al gave him a car that has only three cylinders. He shook his head Unbelievable. The sun was sinking low behind the mountains as Father David pulled back onto the highway. It was growing dark, even though it was still late afternoon. Of course, Father David reasoned, when you're surrounded by such awesome height, you'd likely get only about four or five hours of direct sunlight, even on a good day. You would be living in the twilight of perpetual shadow, not a pleasant prospect. Clouds were spreading across what open sky could still be seen, too high to be threatening, but low enough to make the claustrophobic illusion complete. Father David was starting to feel boxed in. The highway wound alongside the Bow River, the mountains receding for a while to create a broad river valley. But past the exit for Lake Louise, a prospect that didn't tempt Father David, who did not wish to repeat his Banff disappointment. "'the mountains began closing in again. "'It had become dark enough that he saw them now "'as silent, shadowed sentinels, "'their craggy features only faintly visible "'in the failing light. "'How indifferent the mountains were to his passing,' he thought, "'these great, hooded gargantuas, "'neither blocking his way nor granting his passage "'as the thin line of headlights now threaded its way "'through their lower reaches,' Like silent and distant gods, Father David thought. Like a silent and distant God, he thought. Like God. His mind fell silent at this revelation. Like God. Father David had always imagined God to be somewhat remote, aloof even, That was why he preferred the soaring ceilings of continental cathedrals and their provincial imitations here in the New World. They inspired a sense of awe under that vast weight of God's grandeur. This had been a comforting image for Father David, conforming to his own experience of God. He had not shared in the folksy familiarity with which God was approached by the 60s generation— Nor could he claim the personal relationship with Jesus touted by the evangelicals, nor the ecstatic spiritual highs of the charismatics. God, in his experience, was not unlike his own father. Austere, formal, loving, of course, but with high expectations. But all that was before he had endured the faceless gaze of these unyielding mountains. This new austerity the austerity of the shadowy rock formations rising up around him on every side. This was beyond love, wholly indifferent to suffering, to ecstasy, or to anything as minuscule and insignificant as human thought or feeling. This rugged divinity looked down upon the trees and river valleys from remote heights, impassively, neither judging nor condoning, but watching nonetheless ever watching. These frightening new thoughts pushed their way to the surface slowly and with great force, much as the mountains themselves had been formed, the slow tossing of stratum upon stratum, the weaker buckling beneath the grinding advance of the stronger, until the relentless peaks emerged from the primordial oceans, rising up, releasing fire and scorching heat from the earth's core, from the depths of his soul, a rumbling now so deafening that the ground trembled and the earth shook until white-hot lava spewed forth, overflowing down mountainsides, flooding the valleys with this new and imponderable reality. God did not care. Blood rushed to Father David's cheeks and pounded at his temples as he allowed himself to feel the full impact of this thought. God... His God did not care. The reason that Father David could not feel God leading him one way or another as he had set out on this journey was not that he was misinterpreting God. It was not that he was failing to grasp the divine will. It was that God had no will about this at all, about any of it. God was watching impassive as the mountains, as Father David himself slipped from the jagged precipice, plummeting downward, downward through an endless darkness. God was allowing all of this to happen, leaving him alone in the universe, abandoned in his fall, to be crushed, flattened, smashed into a million pieces, lost to the void. This was God's will? Father David's anger rose unchecked to the surface, He hated the idea of this God. He railed against it. After he himself had worked so hard to do what he believed God had wanted. After he had chosen consistently the higher path, the greater good, suppressing his own inner desires for the sake of doing God's will. After all this, to think that God merely stood far off, observing everything, but caring no more or no less than if Father David had made other choices— Than if he had been reckless and foolish, just as he was being right now. None of it mattered, because the truth was, God didn't care. And slowly, from the depths of his rising anger was summoned the one thought Father David had not yet permitted himself to examine. The mental image he feared most found its way up and out, offering itself to him from the darkness. Like a spectral presence, it stood proud and naked before him, mocking and derisive. Its time had come. It was the image of a woman. She was not alone. Father David turned aside, trying to shake off the familiar contours of her body, but wherever his eyes led, the vision followed. It was Beverly, and it was Jill, their bare limbs intertwined. He shook his head and concentrated on the broken yellow line pulsing before him, but still he watched helplessly as their hands, touching, caressing, moved soundlessly down, down. Tears flooded his eyes, blurring his sight, but the vision was unrelenting. He saw the small of a back, the flow of dark hair. He saw the two bodies moving in rhythm against the whiteness of a vast bed, his bed, He saw one convulse. He heard one cry out. His hand came up to his own mouth. He bit hard into his finger. He pulled the car roughly over to the side of the road to a scenic lookout over what was now a dark, chasmic void. Hot tears ran down his cheeks as he sobbed openly, convulsively, his two hands gripping the wheel. He gasped for breath and wailed aloud from the depths into the dark, indifferent night. Forward and back he rocked, moaning until there was nothing left. For a long time, Father David sat, depleted, his hands on the wheel, the car idling, the warmth from the heater radiating up from the floor to enfold him. There was no deeper place for him to go. There was no diversionary thought, no stabilizing idea that would stave off this pain. He had fallen from a great height and this was the bottom. He looked out into the darkness. He had no idea where he was. The clouds parted overhead. For a moment, a bright moon lit the forested mountain slopes surrounding him. He could summon neither the will nor the energy to move from this spot. The futility of this journey was clear to him now. Nothing on Vancouver Island was going to change anything. "'but he had come too far to turn back. "'Maybe he should just press on. "'What did it matter? "'He had already destroyed whatever fragments of his life remained behind. "'They had been shattered like so much gravel beneath his spinning tires, "'so foolishly desperate he was to leave. "'His marriage was probably over. "'He had abandoned his children. "'His career was in tatters. "'Why not just venture forth into this dark night?' His life was already ruined. He put the car into gear and pulled back onto the highway. He was numb to the hours and to the distance that still separated him from sleep as he wound down out of the mountains in an almost hypnotic state. Part of him was saying, What the hell? Just let the car go. Just let it sail right off the highway into the void. But he heard another voice, that of his mother, soft but strong, You can salvage this, David, she was saying. You are not lost. You are being found. He could not comprehend what she might mean by these words, but the mere sound of her voice reassured him. He pressed on into the night through deep-cut valleys alongside moonlit rivers and lakes, following the winding highway until the bright lights of Kamloops guided him safely to a hotel. He took the key, found the room, and fell into bed fully clothed. He pulled the covers up tight around him and slipped into a deep and dreamless sleep. Father David awoke with the soles of his shoes digging into his shins. The bedsheets were tangled around his legs and his body felt bruised as if he had been kicked. It was a struggle to focus his mind. He couldn't quite recall at first just where he was or why. He noted that he was still in his black suit and clericals from the day before, a lifetime ago. His clothes were crumpled and his body was sticky with sweat. A hot shower helped, but he could move only heavily, as if in slow motion, like a drunk rolling out the daylight end of an all-night bender. He sat at the edge of the bed, naked, his wet hair dripping into his eyes and down his back. His mind permitted only the simplest and most immediate of thoughts. Was he hungry? Yes. Would the car need refueling? Yes. How was his money holding out? He reached for his suit jacket and pulled out his wallet. He took out the bills, fanning them like a deck of cards in his hand. Okay. Was he ready to head back onto the highway for the last leg of the journey? He took a deep breath. (laughs) No. He fell back on the bed, rolling under the covers, pulling them up over his head. Sometime later, a knock on the door woke him up. He sat bolt upright, throwing off the covers. Housekeeping, he heard in a heavily accented voice. He drew the covers up again. No, he said too loud, his heart pounding, trying to bring himself round. Sorry, he heard the voice say. They ambled off down the hallway, pushing a cart with squeaky wheels. He heard a knock at the room next door. Housekeeping. He'd better do something. Otherwise, he could languish in this place, just seize up without even knowing where he was, He could not afford to stop, not yet. He had to press on, put one foot in front of the other. Father David pulled on his clothes. He gathered up his things and headed out the door. It was not as late as he'd thought, not quite 9.30 in the morning. He returned the key at the front desk and found his way outside to the car. It was a cool morning with a high sky, ripples of white clouds strung loosely across it, light blue beyond. He surveyed the landscape. He was surrounded by a high Sierra grassland, dry and barren. There were long ruts traversing an adjacent hillside, cattle tracks. Definitely cowboy country, something he hadn't associated with British Columbia. (sighs) British Columbia, ha! He was in British Columbia. He was almost there. It gave him a small lift to recollect that he was, in fact, still engaged on his great adventure. Something of his excitement was dashed, he knew, by the revelations of the night before. Revelations he was not anxious to recall or revisit, but still, the thought of the open road, the ride on the ferry, and his arrival later in the day at his new home on the coast, this was enough now to keep him moving. He picked up a juice, a coffee, and a toasted bagel from a donut shop, gassed up the car, and again found himself pulling onto the highway. The road climbed steadily southward along the spine of the northern Cascade mountain range that would form the alpine route of the Coquihalla Highway. With his three-cylindered flivver struggling to maintain momentum, Father David ground the gas pedal into the floor. The little engine whined shrilly but still lost speed. Strung out tractor trailers, loaded down logging trucks, beat up camper vans and old sedans, their boats and U-Hauls bouncing along behind and tow, all straining to make the steep grade, pulled out to pass him. The weather was changing. The cloud cover had turned grey and was closing in. There was more snow on the mountaintops here than there had been on the Alberta side. Father David could feel a chill in the air and pulled his sweater over his head as he drove on. He passed a sign warning of sudden changes in the weather. Then he glanced ahead to see that, indeed, snow flurries were sweeping the air in front of him. The road was turning slushy, forcing the traffic into a single lane. His light little car fishtailed as he tried to change lanes to pass a road crew parked on the shoulder... He returned to the slow lane, having lost precious momentum. Better just to stay put. And it wasn't even October. Then, just as suddenly, the cloud lifted. The snow vanished, and Father David found himself gazing out over the verdant Nicola Valley, cloud shadows chasing one another across the broad valley floor. The highway dropped down one side of the valley and climbed up out of the other, and then... Once again beneath low, threatening clouds, Father David found himself back in an avalanche zone, cannon mounts fixed strategically at the sides of the road to blast some distant snowy peak and control the release of its ice pack. He turned on the headlights as he coasted through tunnels designed to protect his tin-can car should half the mountain decide to give way. There was no question he and all the others— The transport trailers, the camper vans, the sedans, they were all driving at the mercy of earthly forces far too great and too fickle to be harnessed or controlled. He gripped the wheel with both hands. He would be relieved to drive out of the mountains for the coast. Finally, as the highway wound down into the Fraser River Valley, Father David could see that the mountains were pulling back, rounding off, becoming less severe, losing their edge. They were giving way now to something gentler. The clouds had descended with him, forming a low ceiling that rested atop the few peaks that could still be seen surrounding him. The others were lost in the cloud cover itself, out of sight. As the coastal range parted, Father David was delivered at last out onto the broad Fraser River Delta, where it started to rain, The windshield wiper slapped back and forth in the slower of the two speeds that the frog prince made available to him. Father David was disappointed with his approach to Vancouver. It was such a romantic city in his mind, yet it yielded little more than wet fields on either side, a grey overhung sky, and a common tree-lined highway racing now toward the city. It was a new landscape for him, a few low mountains still visible to the north, but the billboards the increasing pace of the traffic, the dull grayness, this all felt sadly familiar to him, like a mild Toronto day in the middle of February. He stayed on the highway following the signs for Horseshoe Bay, where he would catch the ferry to Vancouver Island. This led him across bridges, past high-density suburban developments and industrial malls through the east end of the city, As he approached the second Narrows Bridge, a trio of soft coastal mountains rose to define the city's natural northern boundary. The sprawling suburban houses, chiseled into solid rock or sunk in lush vegetation, grew more lavish, more grandiose as he continued west along the north shore. The city revealed itself to him in a few stolen glances to the south across Burrard Inlet, As the highway swept him along, he recognized the Lionsgate Bridge from the pictures he'd seen and the Mound of Green representing Stanley Park. A dense cluster of high-rise office towers and condominiums indicated the city's downtown core and beyond them, Father David caught his first glimpse of the dark waters of the Georgian Strait, cold and forbidding under low-hanging cloud. It was not until he arrived at Horseshoe Bay that the swirling coastal mists began working their magic on him. Having just missed a sailing, he parked the Frog Prince near the head of the lineup for the next ferry two hours hence. He stepped stiffly out of the car and walked toward the main street of town to find a place to eat. There was something invigorating, almost intoxicating about this seaside air. It almost stung his nostrils as he sucked it in. The ocean was pungent at low tide, dead matter rotting in small clumps upon the rocks and sand of the narrow beach. The dark forests that rose sharply along the shore were wet and fungal, a thin fog lifting finger-like through the trees. He could feel the dampness penetrating his clothes, his skin, even through his sweater and coat. His cheeks were colouring as if pinched to life by the salt spray and the cedar mist. He had anticipated spectacular scenery. This is what the West Coast is known for. He'd seen the calendars. But with the low cloud cover precluding any panoramic views, he now felt himself being moved by subtler forces. While the rock-slab mountains of the interior had been intimidating, with their swirling weather and their distant inscrutability, these softer seaside forces were seeping into his senses unbidden, like a seduction. He could feel himself yielding, letting go, as if to forbidden fruit. In the context of this new day, with all that had gone before, it was not a bad feeling. The ferry itself did not permit much of a view as it chugged beneath the muffling cloud, around the coastal inlets and islands, and out into the open waters of the strait. Standing outside on the deck, leaning over the cold metal rail, Father David was fascinated by the floatsam swept outward by the wake of the ferry's broad beam. Whole logs, stripped clean of bark, Streams of seaweed, kelp, and wood chips held loosely together in a greasy slick at the juncture of countervailing currents. Bright painted boys bobbing jauntily, guiding the boat's passage. Even as he shivered in the damp chill, he could not bring himself to leave the deck and retreat indoors. The dark, frigid waters were mesmerizing. A strange new world with its own laws, its own hidden truths, Whatever his source of confidence back east, the realization was growing within Father David that he was arriving at the very edge of his known world. Disembarking in Nanaimo, with the landscape obscured through a light fog, Father David sought landmarks that would help orient him to his new terrain. But following the road signs, he was swept along on a highway that looked not so different from parts of southwestern Ontario, Green farmland and rolling hillsides, gravel side roads and fence lines, grazing cows and horses. It was not until he took the exit for the Pacific Rim Highway that the landscape began to change. Like a gentle giant waking from sleep, the island began to show itself. Soft hillsides straightened into rock faces. "'Lush green forests strode right up alongside the road "'with their gnarled, moss-covered spruce and spreading cedars. "'Gushing streams flowed out from the forests "'and sometimes from the rock itself. "'Cameron Lake suddenly appeared on the right "'like a Scottish loch, deep and forbidding, "'mountains rising high on each side. "'The road hugged a narrow shoreline "'between the water and a wall of rock, "'then, leaving the lake, Father David was delivered into a dark grove of towering trees so tall, they disappeared altogether in the mists high overhead. He couldn't resist the urge to pull over. This was the renowned Cathedral Grove. The traffic swept silently out of the fog and back into it again as Father David got out of the car and stood perfectly still beneath a canopy of distant foliage enveloped by a profound and overwhelming Stillness. There was no wind that Father David could feel, but higher up, the spreading branches of the Douglas firs and red cedars were swaying in a lofty breeze that could not penetrate the forest's dense lower reaches. The grove was well named, he thought, as he strained to detect even the slightest sound of life. Surely God was in this place. Though perhaps with no less indifference here than in the mountains, but Still, there was something. Port Alberni was overcast with the same low cloud that had followed him from the mainland. Father David could sense that the day was losing its light. He had to look at his watch, so disoriented had he become to the time of day, approaching five o'clock. He was within reach of the coast now, and his heart thrilled at the thought. The damp smell of cedar and the clinging coastal mists were leading him home to a place he had never seen before. The last leg of his journey led Father David on a winding road deep through the interior of the island, past the long westward arm of Sproat Lake and up into the Mackenzie Mountain Range. Visibility diminished even further in the falling dark, but he could feel the car rising to the occasion, could hear the pumping of its little pistons, the high whine of its tire treads on the wet pavement— He found himself glancing out across sudden drop-offs, the road rising now above the treetops which appeared in his headlights through the mist. There was no dozing off on this stretch of broken road. It rose and fell without warning, now hugging a rocky cliff, now doubling back in a hairpin turn, requiring of Father David the nerve-wracking attentiveness of a rally driver. So abundant had been recent rains that waterfalls literally spouted onto the open road, causing small-scale flash floods. His little car charged through them, almost with enthusiasm, sending a watery spray high up both sides. Finally, Father David reached a T-junction that pointed right to Tofino and left to Euclid. He had utterly lost his bearings in the fog and the rain and the dark, So now he simply allowed the signs to lead him the rest of the way. Euclulet presented itself after a short drive up and over some hills with dense forest on either side. The sudden lights of a gas station cast an eerie glow in the night, indicating he was entering town, which seemed to be sleeping, spread on a ribbon of road, lit houses and locked-up businesses appearing and disappearing through the fog in circles of amber light like passing beacons of welcome. Father David followed the directions he had received from Bishop Hovey and pulled up in front of a small green cottage bearing the address of the rectory. A note had been taped to the front door. Keys in kitchen, it said. How was he to get in then, he wondered. But he tried the door, it opened, and he stepped into his new home. Bringing in just what he would need for the night, He acquainted himself only with the rooms that presented themselves to him immediately off the front hall, an empty carpeted living room, a bathroom, and a large adjacent room which seemed to be the master bedroom. There was a double bed and a long low dresser. He opened the closet, but there was no bedding. Father David hadn't considered that he would have to provide his own bedding, and he hadn't thought to bring a sleeping bag. But aching and exhausted now, He got partially undressed and lay himself down upon the wide mattress, his sweater for a pillow, his duffel coat for a blanket. As he drifted off into sleep, rainwater dripped from the eaves into puddles in the garden outside the window, and a foghorn moaned in the night, warning sailors to keep their distance, but reassuring Father David that he had finally arrived. I've been reading from my novel, Passion Tide. In the next episode, Father David awakens in a land so unfamiliar, amidst a people so strange, there can be no doubt that he's a long way from home. But in its place, at least for now, there's something else. Wonder. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been the mystic cave.